We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, on this unfortunate occasion, I am fortunate enough to be joined by Mary Margaret Olihan, who is a reporter over at The Daily Wire. She is out with a I don't even an agonizing new story that is reported out and also sort of written as a first person essay about the incredibly bizarre case of the aborted babies who were found in a pro-life activist's home, um, but led us down this path of discovery that tells us a lot about the modern abortion industry Mary Margaret, thank you so much for joining us and, and thank you for writing the story, which, as I said before we started recording, was very well written, but also very well reported. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here and be able to chat with you about this. It's uh, We chose to write this story in a first-person narrative, my editors at The Daily Wire and I, because I got in the car after this experience and was just, you know, I broke down. I was so upset. I was crying a lot and I report on abortion all the time for a couple of years now and I didn't think that I this that I would get that emotional about it you know I you see horrible things all the time you get a little bit used to it unfortunately but when I talked to my editors they were like this is how we got to tell this story you have to tell it in the first person narrative so that people can really understand what what you saw they were absolutely right. Um, Mary Margaret, a, a staunch Catholic, longtime uh, pro-life <laughs> beliefs, uh, found herself inside of an abortion clinic, which, by the way, I should say it's it's uh, right on the campus of George Washington University, where I went to school and is sort of infamous on campus once people figure out it's there. Uh, but before we get into your experience in the clinic and, and why it left you in tears, uh, tell us the basics of the story. It, it, the story has hit the national news because it is so bizarre. The the media and Democrats are ignoring it, especially Democrats here in Washington, D.C., but it has bubbled into a national story. So if folks are, are, are not familiar with what happened, could you just give us the basics? Um, they're confusing, but it would be helpful to have the facts. Yes, of course. And you're right. It is really confusing. And <laughs> that is partially due to the way the media has been reporting it. So I think that if you saw, if you've been following the story from the beginning, the way it was initially reported was crazy anti-abortion activists uh, have babies in their house and the police went there and found them. That's the way the media was describing this story at first. But the reality is, and this is from, this is what I've learned from talking to activists with the progressive anti-abortion uprising, which is a progressive pro-life group. They're not conservative in many ways, but they're pro-life. So two ladies from this group, Teresa Bukanovic and Lauren Handy, went down to Washington Surgery Clinic, which is the um, abortion clinic that you're talking about, Emily, and that's in Foggy Bottom. And they were outside the clinic, and they noticed a big truck that said Curtis Bay Medical Waste Facility. And there was a driver that was loading stuff into the truck and they saw on a dolly there outside the clinic, there were two boxes that had all kinds of Curtis Bay labeling all over them. They also had um, labeling that said that they were from Washington Surgery Clinic. So I'm, I'm being a little bit particular about these boxes, but it's because they're important. 
So these Teresa and Lauren, these progressive anti-abortion uprising members, went to the truck driver and they said, do you know what's in those boxes? And the driver told them he didn't. And they told him that there are dead babies in the boxes. Now, they didn't know for sure that that was true, but they were pretty sure. That's what they told me. And they told the driver that they wanted to give the babies a proper burial and a funeral because that's something that their group is very focused on, is um, respectfully putting away the remains of babies that are that are killed in this way. And so the driver agreed to let them take the box, one of the boxes, and he said that he had already scanned them in so they would probably go unnoticed. Uh, that's also important, too, because this waste facility later on says that the, the pro-lifers didn't take the box. But anyways, these women take the box. That's what they tell me. They take it home. They are very, you know, apprehensive about what they're going to find inside. They told me that they wanted to have a priest there when they opened the box. They went and got a lot of different medical supplies so that they could do this in a, um, in a sanitized way uh, and respectful way. And I have seen videos, Emily, of them opening the box. They're incredibly upsetting, just very, very gruesome horrible scenes of these women opening this box and finding 110 little boxes of pulverized first trimester babies and then five fully formed babies that at the Daily Wire we've been calling preemie size babies because I think that's a really good way to um, let people know how big these babies are. They're preemie sized. And so these activists, they find all these babies in these boxes and, you know, watching these videos, they're incredibly upset. You can hear the emotion. I think they're crying in some of them. And so they decided that they were going to alert authorities that they had them so that a forensic examination could be done of these babies to find out how they died. I'm told that if if the, if some of these babies survived outside the womb before their lives were ended, they might have air in their lungs. So that would be something an autopsy could tell you. Well, they while they're preparing to tell police that they had these babies, they find out that the FBI is getting ready to arrest a lot of members of the progressive anti-abortion uprising because of their involvement in an October 2020 situation where Lauren Handy and a bunch of the other members pushed their way into an abortion clinic. And this is unrelated to what's happened in D.C. recently, but, you know, it's related as in as much as these events are all happening at the same time. So Teresa and Lauren are both staying at Teresa's apartment because Lauren's apartment has the babies in it. And they, they told me they were thinking of it kind of like a tomb mm -hmm. because all these babies are in there. And so they told me that really early one morning, they got up from Teresa's house, they got in an Uber and they drove to Lauren's house and they had heard that the FBI was making some arrests. And so they were a little apprehensive of what was going on. Well, they pull up to Lauren's house and they get out of the Uber and the FBI get out of their cars and arrests Lauren. So Teresa told me she was just assuming that they had the babies at this point. So she went into the house. This is a, you know, a little townhouse on Capitol Hill. And she goes inside and the babies are all still there. She couldn't believe it. Um, and so she went to the progressive anti-abortion uprising, their leadership. They talked about it. They got their lawyer involved. The lawyer wrote a letter to the D.C. authorities and said, we have these babies. Please come get them, do a forensic examination of them. 
And then the police came and got them. Well, then the police said in their press release and they told reporters that a tip led them to these babies. I don't know if that was on purpose, that phrasing. I've been told that they, they that is common um, police phrasing for how they discovered a body or they, they discovered a crime scene since they don't want to reveal all the facts necessarily. Be that as it may, the media reported that the police were led to babies in this house and the media reported it as if these pro-lifers were hoarding babies when in fact they were the ones that told the police to come get them. So mm. at this point, now we know that there's all these these five fully formed babies that looked like they were really gruesomely aborted. And there's these 110 babies that uh, were pulverized in the first trimester. So uh, pro the progressive anti-abortion uprising told me that they gave those remains to a priest, the 110 small babies who took them somewhere that they did not tell me and buried them and gave them a funeral. I don't know who that priest was. I was and I just going to ask, did they were you able to <laughs> confirm anything about that? I, I was not. I, I don't know who the priest was and I don't know where he buried them. I would like to know and I would love to chat with that priest either on or off the record about what that was like, because um, that's not something you hear every day. <laughs> no. Um, and there are, I, I think there are legal questions as well. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, at this point, we have these five babies that the authorities have. I've been given their case numbers by the progressive anti-abortion uprising. And the DC authorities told the Washington Post that they weren't planning on doing an autopsy of these babies, which is incredibly shocking given that multiple of these babies are so massive. One of the babies was aborted in the amniotic sac, which mm -hmm. pro-life doctors told me that it's likely that the doctors wouldn't know whether the baby was alive or not if it was the abortionist, sorry, wouldn't know if the baby was alive or not when it came out, if it was still in the amniotic sac, which means the baby would probably suffocate in there when it was born. So there's just a lot of questions about how these babies died. The pro-lifers are saying that um, Santangelo, the abortionist, was has violated the Partial Birth Abortion Act of 2003 and that he also violated the Born Alive Protection Act. Um in saying that he committed partial birth abortions and let these babies die after they were born. We don't know that. We don't know exactly what went on, but if from what pro-life doctors who have looked at the babies said, it looks like that may be the case and autopsies would certainly help us to understand what's going on here. Well, doesn't look like that's going to happen. And I've been pinging Bowser, the DC medical examiner, department of health and human services, um, Metropolitan Police Department, the clinic itself, all of these places asking for answers on this. And no one wants to give me any. In particular, Curtis Bay Medical Waste Facility, rather yes. than look into this at all, this waste facility is much more interested in watching its back. So they immediately denied to me that the pro-lifers took the boxes and they denied that they burned fetal remains. Well, we have photos of these boxes inside and out showing that they were on a dolly about to head to Curtis Bay Medical Waste Facility and they were full of babies. So the question is, <laughs> why is Curtis Bay Medical Waste Facility taking babies? Maybe they had no idea those babies were in there, but what are they going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? They won't tell me. 
they they are not interested in addressing this. I think they, like the rest of DC officials, are just kind of hoping this goes away. And as mm-hmm. I'm realizing this more and more, that no one's giving answers, and they really are just hoping this will just fade off into the, you know, fade off into the news cycle. Something will happen. It'll take everyone's attention, and no one will be interested anymore. I got really frustrated last Thursday, and. I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get answers. No one's answering me. So I was like, you know what? <laughs> I'm just going to go to Santangelo's house because um, maybe he'll give me some answers. So I well, went to- You're a reporter. And that's <laughs> <what> reporters do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so I headed down to his million dollar home in Georgetown. Um, he also has a fancy little place in Miami um, that he apparently has from his profits as an abortionist. And he wasn't home. So I went over to the clinic in Buggy Bottom on GW's campus, like you were saying. And the clinic is on the fourth floor of an office building. It's uh, so you, you get up there, you get off the elevator and then there's a hallway and there's a door. And I was paused at the, the entrance because there's a sign on the door that said you need a mask. And I'm no, <laughs> I'm no big fan of masks and I normally would just go in, but I, I wanted to make sure I was going to get the answers I wanted. So I was, I'm looking in my purse for a mask to see if I can find one. And right then uh, the door opened and this woman came out with a man behind her and she seemed upset, but I wasn't really, I was very focused on what I was doing. So I, I, I wasn't interested in paying attention to her at the moment. And I wish that I was in retrospect, um, but once the door opened and people saw me, I knew I had to go in. So I just went in and asked the girl at the desk if I could have a mask. She was super nice and said, of course, and handed me one. And she asked if I was there for an appointment. And I put on my mask and I said, no, actually, I'm trying to talk to Dr. Santangelo. And she said, why? What do you <laughs> what do you need? And I said, I'm the reporter that was talking to you on the phone. My name is Mary Margaret. I'm with The Daily Wire. I have some questions for him and for you. And she immediately, her demeanor changed a lot. She became very frosty, said that they couldn't tell me anything. And she told me that he wasn't there. And I had a good response in the story. And and, and people who don't know, by the way, Mary Margaret is a a fairly young reporter, but is clearly uh, capable, as I've known for some time, because you responded with what, Mary Margaret? (laughs) I I told her, I don't think that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, the waiting room was full of people. And I had just seen that woman coming out. I had just been at his house and, you know, that's not any indicator that he didn't answer the door, but I was fairly confident that she was wrong and that she was lying. And, um, and he's also the only abortionist at that facility anyways. So I, I told her, I don't think that's true. And she insisted that he wasn't there and that they couldn't tell me anything. And that I needed to talk to the national abortion Federation, which of course, is doing PR for Washington Surgery Clinic and Dr. Santangelo in this crisis. And uh, so then another woman came out from the back and they both are just rigidly telling me, nope, they can't tell me anything. I kind of pushed back a lot. And I said, I even looked the first woman in the eye. She was being very evasive. And I said, look, this is not going to go well. We're going to, people are wanting answers. If you want to talk to me off the record, I would love that. Please reach out to me. She wouldn't make eye contact. And the other woman said, no, no one's reaching out to you. Hmm. And, and I reminded them that, you know, the Metropolitan Police Department, the FBI, a lot of different 
um, authorities are involved in this matter, so it would only help them if they're telling the truth to talk to me. And they again said no. And so at this point, I didn't want to, you know, I, I wanted to leave if they were telling me to and not, um, you know, trespass or anything. So I prepare to leave and I start to go out the door. And as I open it, I see in the hall that woman that I had passed earlier and she's leaning on the wall. She has one hand on the wall and just bending all the way over. And the mm -hmm. man was bending over her and she's just kind of heaving and moaning. And uh, I immediately was alarmed. And the man looked up as I came out and his eyes were super red and he looked really distressed. And I said, is everything okay? And, um, and he uh, he looked at me really alarmed and she straightened up and tried to act really normal. And she said, yeah, it's fine. Um, but she still looked really upset and her face was all sweaty and I, I was alarmed. And, uh, and I said, what's going on? Do you mind telling me? And I, I could tell that they were both distressed. So I tried to be gentle and I was like, I'm a reporter. If you don't mind sharing, I would love to hear what's going on. And she said, we're here for an abortion. And I was confused because, you know, she's in the hall. She's clearly in a lot of pain, but that's not the way I normally think of an abortion going. You know, you think they're in the stirrups or in the room. It happens quickly. And I said, what do you mean? Did you already have it? And she said, no, I'm having it right now. Mm -hmm. And I looked at her and her stomach is just protruding from her shirt. She's clearly far along. I would, I would guess at least in the second trimester, maybe third. And I was just so overcome. I couldn't believe it uh, that, you know, she's, she's having an abortion right there in front of me. And uh, so I, I started to push and ask her more what was going on. And she said, they took the tubes out. Well, I've been covering abortion for a long time. So, well, <laughs> not that long, a couple of years, but I, <laughs> um, but I quickly realized what she was talking about, which was laminaria, which is often seaweed. It's what abortionists put in the mom to help dilate her so that they can get in easier and access the baby easier, mm. goes into labor. And so pro-life doctors who I talked to after this told me that the reason that she was probably in the hall is because they were going to do an induction abortion. So you put the laminaria in and you take it out and it helps as the mom dilates, she starts to go into labor. Then they bring her back in and do an induction abortion, go in and get the baby. And if they don't cut the umbilical cord before the baby is born, the baby can be born alive. So, and that has happened in the past. So I'm thinking all of this as I'm standing there in the hall, I know bits and pieces of what I just said. I, I learned the rest of it from pro-life doctors afterwards, but I knew enough that I was just overcome by the thought of what was going on. And before we could talk anymore, an abortion clinic worker stuck her head out the door and was like, don't talk to her, don't talk to her. And the couple looked at me and I said, she doesn't want you to talk to me because I'm a reporter. And in retrospect, Emily, I, I regret that so much. I so regret not having the presence of mind to ignore that woman and tell them what I should have, which was say something to the effect of, do you wanna be here? Are you happy that this is happening? Um, is there anything that you wish that you had known before this? I, I wish that I was able to kind of get get in her headspace and understand whether she wanted to be there or not because whether or not I um whether or not she did she was in great distress and she was her baby was being aborted in that moment and 
um, I had only a couple of seconds to, to speak with her and, you know, it, I, I regret what I said, but, um, as they were going in the door, cause this woman kept yelling at her, I told them to reach out to me if they wanted to talk to me at the daily wire. And I told her my name, I probably don't remember either of those things because, you know, so much was going on and I doubt I'll hear from them, but I've been praying for her a lot. And I hope that she, I hope that she, um, is okay and that her boyfriend or her husband is okay and that you know maybe they changed their mind and left afterwards hmm. I, it, it, just an incredibly sort of distressing uh moment in your attempt to report the story out that so many people are ignoring uh what context can you give us about the laws here in washington dc and i asked that question because um as a resident it's sort of appalling to me that the city has not committed to conducting autopsies and, and seems unlikely to do so. Given that, there is pretty clear evidence laws may have been broken. Uh, but even so, I think this context would be helpful because it, it explains exactly how radical uh, the city's abortion regulations actually are. Well, that, that's a you're totally right. This is a major part of this story is that D.C. doesn't have a law banning abortion at any point. And so when when authorities came out a few or last week and said that these babies were legally aborted, that doesn't mean anything. That just means that there's no laws protecting the babies. So any type of abortion is technically legal in D.C., which is unthinkable. You know, this is the nation's capital of the greatest country in the world, and there's not a single law protecting the unborn. But that's something that is celebrated here. I mean, this D.C. is notoriously pro-abortion. The Biden administration is even more pro-abortion. And Bowser herself, while we're reaching out, asking for answers and asking her to address why no autopsies are being done, she's retweeting Emily's List, the pro-abortion group that's tweeting an article praising her and endorsing her. Just the lack of any kind of awareness as everyone's begging for answers on these this abortion scandal. And it's not even a it's not even like pro-lifers or conservatives are upset because um abortions are going on in DC. This is about abortions, late-term abortions in DC. This is about potentially babies being born alive and then killed in DC. But apparently no one cares. And then the worst part to me, maybe not the worst part, but a significant part to me is that in 2012, Live Action recorded this abortionist talking about how he would allow babies to die if they were born alive through his abortions. This same guy, Dr. Santangelo, when he was still operating at Washington Surgery Clinic. And from what I can tell, there was nothing, nothing done at the time. Those videos came out and nobody did anything about it. Metropolitan Police Department won't tell me anything about whether that happened. They said there's an ongoing investigation. But Live Action also told me they don't believe anything happened either. And that was 2012. That was 10 years ago. Just unbelievable. And, and yet here he is. He's still operating. We have that background and that context, and no one seems to care. Yeah, it, it's... <laughs> Sort of hard to fathom, but uh, so I, I think another thing that probably is hard for people to fathom is that there's a, a group of activists that are actually progressive, <laughs> uh, progressive, uh, openly progressive anti-abortion 
activists. And it sounds like from your reporting that you've had some interactions with them recently and have been in conversation with them. Uh, I can totally see how somebody might read the story and be like, is this a psyop? What on earth is, is going on? You mean to tell me that these fetuses were found, these babies were found in the home of a progressive, uh, progressive anti-abortion activists exist. So if you could just clue us in a little bit um, on, you know, what these, what this group is like, um, you know, anything about them that you think would be helpful. um, I I would honestly love to understand this more. Yeah. Well, I've bumped into them at a bunch of different events around DC. They are, you know, there's a lot of different pro-life groups around here. Some are more dignified. Others are more outspoken. Um, you know, you've got like Abby Johnson, who's pretty sassy on social media. And then you have the Susan B. Anthony list, which is very dignified. And they work with lawmakers a lot. They're involved in a lot of state legislation. Then you have people like Lila Rose, um, who I think are more popular with young people. And they really resonate. Their message resonates with younger generations. So you've got a whole mix of pro-lifers out there. Um, the progressive anti-abortion uprising is definitely one of a kind. Um, These women are very vocal in their passion about this. And I think that's led a lot of people to um, think of them as perhaps kind of fringe. And, you know, when you talk about your passion for burying unborn babies that um, were aborted, well, that can make you look a little wacky to some people. And I think that even conservatives might look at a group like that and think that's weird until you actually sit down and you look at what's going on and you think, okay, there are babies being aborted all over the country every day. And then what happens to their bodies? Someone's got to do something about it. So, you know, I think, I think that every pro-life group has its place in the movement and, um, these guys have been doing really good work in DC for a while. They, certainly have gotten themselves in some trouble before. And we will see how this um, DOJ involvement in their pushing into this clinic in October, 2020, that's, uh, that's um, certainly something. But I think it's hard to look at this stuff too, because from a reporter's perspective, you know, I gotta, I gotta look into what happened in that October, 2020 incident and, you know, what laws were broken and, who's culpable, but from a pro-life activist perspective, as I'm hearing from a lot of people, that move was applauded. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, they're not looking at it from a legal perspective or um, or a secular perspective, perhaps. They're looking at it as you stopped abortions that day. Good job. Yeah, it, it's, so there's people who are outside of the pro-life movement should know there's an intense debate about tactics that side of it it sort of comes and goes, but uh, the the tactics, the debate about tactics in the pro-life movement is a, um, an important one. And it's one that really never seems to go away, although it takes different forms at different times. And I think that's sort of what you're getting at here. Um, And I, I wonder if they, if, is there anything, because uh, this all seems to come down to whether or not the man with the, the waste disposal company um, sort of voluntarily parted with that box, uh, which, you know, it, it said he'd already scanned it, he'd already scanned the box. So, 
nobody would really know that it was gone. Is that kind of what we know about how these got into their hands? Um, and I should note, it, I should note, as I think you do, that they haven't been responsive to the media. The waste management company hasn't been uh, responsive to the media, which, you know, you can take that for what it is. Uh, if I were them, I wouldn't want to be responsive to the media either. Right. But, um, you know, there's there's something to that to be sure. Yes, and I guess I should clarify that I have been in contact with Curtis Bay back and forth um, for, you know, all, uh, several days last week. What I kept being told was that they would get me something else, or the first guy I talked to was honestly very hostile. He was very aggressive. He told me I didn't have any evidence. Well, then I sent him a bunch of photos of Curtis Bay Medical Waste Facility truck and then these boxes covered in Curtis Bay labeling. And then his response was, well, you can't prove that there were babies inside. Blah, blah. Well, then I sent him videos and tweets showing from this group, showing these boxes with the labeling, with the babies inside silence. So mm. I think they know at this point what's going on. Um, and they're like I was saying before, they're really hoping that this all just goes away because it most likely will. It most likely will go away. There's DC authorities aren't doing anything about it um, without conservative media and conservative lawmakers calling for investigations to be done. This would already be nothing, you know, right. It would just be a bunch of nuts, you know, cons- and not, this is what I'm saying be portrayed as pro-life or anti-abortion extremists who had babies in their houses, how horrific. And that would be the end of it. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Um, and that's certainly the way that it's been framed. But uh, it, it seems as though they intercepted a package. Um, and the question then for the left is, you know, reckoning with the realities of abortion and abortions that, you know, it sounds like also they want to be legal, um, you know, depending on who you're talking to um, and where they stand on this. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, so-called uh, mainstream moderate Democrats who Ralph Nor- Ralph Northam, um, who have supported laws that allow abortion, uh, you know, through a pregnancy. So the question then for the left becomes reckoning with the the gruesome realities of the process, which is that you have fully formed babies that get packed into boxes. And, and shipped uh, to be disposed of. And the reality is that you had anti-abortion activists stepping in here, pro-life activists stepping in here to uh, give them a proper burial um, and, and name them. And that is, is also sort of a, a strange thing to find yourself doing. Um, and I'm not casting judgment on it in one way or the other when I say it's, it's, it's objectively kind of strange, um, but it does force the, the left certainly to reckon with the industry and right. the process of, of this gruesome procedure. That's so true. And I think, like you were saying earlier about tactics, which come up so often among all these groups, you know, like I was saying earlier, we've got like Susan Anthony List, um, live action, uh, and then they were none. You got all these different types of pro-life groups. And I think a lot of them disagree with each other on how to best get the message out or how to deal, how to tell Americans about abortion. And I'm sure there's the same kind of internal debate on on the other side about how to um, properly just commonize abortion, I guess. But one major issue that this resolves, revolves around is graphic images of babies. And I've never liked them. I've always found them to be really gruesome. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone wants to look at them. 
And if you go to the March for Life, there's always this big truck that big trucks that have huge, huge graphic images of aborted babies, and they're very upsetting. Um, but this is a case where these babies, photographs of these babies have brought a ton of awareness to what is going on in the United States and in DC. And without these photographs, which by the way, live action photographed the babies. Uh, so, action- so how did live action end up in a position to photograph the babies? So live action told me that they were in touch with the progressive anti-abortion uprising and a live action uh, photographer went to Lauren Handy's house before the babies were given to the police and photographed the babies. And then they posted those on social media. So live action has named the babies. I think they called them baby boy number one, baby girl number one. Progressive anti-abortion uprising also named the babies. And they named them different names like Christopher X and names like that. Mm-hmm. Um, both groups are are distributing the images in different ways. And like I was saying before, I think they can be really troubling and upsetting for some people. And if you notice in our Daily Wire reporting, we were very careful to say, warning, we have really graphic images in here. They might be upsetting. For example, I have friends who have miscarried, and I know that this type of content could Mm -hmm. make them not only incredibly upset, but just uh, it could be really bad for them. So I do think that you have a duty to be careful with how you distribute such images and how you um, how you how you show them to the public. But that being said, these have been very powerful in this case for like baby girl number one, I believe it is. If you look at that picture, based on what based on all you can see in that picture, I've had multiple pro life doctors and Abby Johnson tell me that it looks like that baby was. Um, aborted through a uh, a dilation and evacuation procedure, which is incredibly gruesome and horrific. And that can be seen just from looking at the picture and the way the baby's eye is and the way the baby's head is. And, which is um, legal, right? It, a partial birth abortion is illegal if the baby is alive. So if the mm-hmm. baby is, is not alive, then it's all right. But if but that we baby, don't know that, right? So right. Like, that's the thing. That's why we need the government to perform autopsies. Exactly. And so I actually covered a lot, a letter from lawmakers last week who called on the department of justice and Merrick Garland to investigate whether, whether those babies were aborted in violation of the partial birth abortion act of 2003. Hmm. Now that's interesting to me on multiple levels. One, because our uh, secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra, he actually voted against the Partial Birth Abortion Act of 2003. And uh, I have been referred to the Department of Health and Human Services by the mayor's office. Hmm. Uh, So (laughs) there's so many parts to this, Emily, that are uh, concerning. You know, I mean, we have we already know how pro-abortion the Biden administration is, but when the DC medical examiner tells me we can't tell you anything. Go to Bowser's office. She's handling comms. And then Bowser's office refers me to the department of health and human services, their rep. Well, that's concerning. When do, the, do all of those different parties have authority to call for an autopsy in this case or to, to actually perform the autopsy? The DC medical examiner could perform the, the, the autopsies in my understanding. Okay, so like Muriel Bowser could tell the DC medical examiner to do that, or the FBI could. That's my understanding. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's an important part of the puzzle. Yeah, and wh- another thing that I find concerning is pro-lifers 
last week when we were reporting on this on Monday, a bunch of them told me kind of frantically that they were really worried that the DC medical examiner was going to get rid of the evidence, the babies. Hmm. And I, I need to confirm this, but I I've been told that that has happened in the past. I believe that happened in um, a case related to Gosnell, the abortionist who's now behind bars, but I would have to double check that because I, I have not verified that myself. Yeah. That doesn't a- seem out of the, out of the question, given the way, I mean, it, once you, this is an important thing to think about too. Like once you're an abortionist um, that as you, as you mentioned, the, the first baby looks like a partial birth abortion perhaps. And there's some reason to suggest that the baby was alive. Once you're sort of accustomed to um, that kind of, medical treatment as you see it and you numb yourself to that uh gosh it's hard to imagine what you're not numb to exactly oh i remember reading i i actually i used to work at regnery publishing and so i was working on um, publicity for the gosnell book when the movie came out and i remember reading a passage where uh they described how gosnell performed an abortion right after he was eating teriyaki chicken out of a chinese food box in his Mm -hmm. Or no, right? Yeah, he he finished the abortion, went in and ate the teriyaki chicken with chopsticks while his hands were still dirty from it, and that oh. image has just stayed with me. Just a bloody abortion doctor eating teriyaki chicken out of a Chinese food box. I just I can't shake that, and oh. it really speaks to your point that what are you not comfortable with if you're comfortable with these types of procedures? Yeah, and it's a question for our our society more broadly, but it's one that you raise a very good point towards is I, I don't know that people are numb to it because I don't know that people know the reality. And these pictures, uh, horrific as they are, and I actually looked at them on accident. I don't know if I would have clicked on them otherwise. I guess I probably would have. But th- these pictures put it into stark perspective, and it's it's hard to imagine how society, if society saw that, could possibly be, be numb uh, to what's happening Mary Margaret, is there anything that we haven't covered here that you think is important to understand about this this crazy saga that's unfolding right now here in the district? Well, I would just say that I don't know that I I explained uh, my reaction when I left the clinic, because like I was saying earlier, I think we cover all this a lot and we talk about all this a lot and I was under the impression that I was kind of a tough cookie when it came to abortion. I could write about it and talk about it and not be incredibly bothered if I didn't think about it too hard. But I left that clinic and it was raining and I got down into the lobby and I just, it came over me like a wave. What had just happened. I had just encountered a woman that was in the middle of her abortion and I got in my car and I was, I was getting ready to call my editor and, you know, I was trying to like shake it off and, and, uh, and go home and write like as if nothing happened. And I just broke down. I was, I was so upset. I, I sobbed and I called a friend and I kept saying, Oh my God. And I like, I think I I consider that blaspheming, but I never, I, I never say that. And I just was so overcome by what I had just witnessed. And I couldn't believe that, um, that her pain was was being evidenced by Dr. Santangelo. She was going in there to have an abortion done by this man who we know has said, been recorded saying that he would allow a baby to die if it was born alive. And I just was so overcome by the thought that he was still in there doing these abortions while DC officials turn a blind eye to all of this. 
And while there's people like me and other reporters across the city that work for conservative outlets that are saying, hello, what is going on? Give us answers. He's just still up there operating. And that just, I I could not fathom it. I was so overcome and I keep thinking about it. I keep, you know, it, it just, it makes all of this very real. I stood on his doorstep. I rang his doorbell. I could see the shoes in the back of his house because the glass door was open or the, it was just a glass door. I could see, I was in his, his uh, abortion clinic lobby where he goes every day and there were other people in there. And just, it, it really kind of, it, it's like you're looking at the world from really far away and all of a sudden you zoom in really close and you're seeing everything really close for the first time. And, you know, we talk a lot about babies and how the babies should be saved but I think we don't talk enough about the mothers themselves and what they go through. Like, why was that woman there? Why did she feel like she needed to get that abortion? And, uh, and, and who told her that, that it was safe or that she should go to a doctor like Dr. Santangelo. And so I think that as we move forward, talking about these issues, that's something really important to keep in mind. You know, Roe v. Wade might be overturned soon. Um, I'm hearing from a lot of people that it will probably be overturned soon. And, um, People like Dr. Santangelo are the ones that are going to keep doing abortions if that happens. And this is, it's just, it's very eye-opening and it's something that I think we need to keep in mind as we, as we head forward. Yeah. And based on that, I do have one more question, which is, did you learn anything about the, um, about these companies that handle medical waste from <laughs> waste is, is not the right word in this case, although it is the industry word um, uh, from abortions and what that process is like. Did you learn anything um, about that through your reporting on the situation? Well, these companies insist that they do not burn fetal remains. Yes, uh, this is an interesting part of your story. I, a horrific part of your story, but an interesting part of it. Yeah, they they insist. It says on their website, they they specifically say we do not burn fetal remains. Now, this energy um, or medical waste facility that I was talking to, they told me over and over. Well, <laughs> they told me they gave me two the same statement over the course of last week, saying that one, the pro-lifers never took the box and two, that they don't burn fetal remains. They also told me on the phone, this guy Taylor that I talked to, that they would never burn medical waste or they would never burn fetal remains. And he said, and I am not quoting him directly because I can't remember exactly how he phrased this, but he said something along the lines of, you know, there's other things that come out of an abortion facility that are medical waste besides babies, right? Mm -hmm. And I keep thinking about that because I'm like, how do you know that? that's the only thing coming out of that clinic. Like you're so confident that the, the only thing coming out of that clinic is, you know, the medical waste that fits into Curtis Bay medical waste facilities parameters. Well, they're not checking the boxes clearly. And I mean, that would be kind of gruesome if they were going through all this medical waste anyways. Um, but I had, I specifically said to them, okay, if, if let's just say you guys don't know anything about this, and this abortion clinic was sending you against your rules, boxes of aborted babies. What are you going to do about that to make sure it doesn't happen? They didn't say anything. I said, what do you have in place to make sure that that doesn't happen? Nothing. They didn't say anything. So that in and of itself is a huge red flag. Um, I'm going to be looking into this more because I have a lot of questions. I've, I've heard and I've heard that this is uh, potentially a problem at the Planned Parenthood in Baltimore, um, 
So we're going to be looking into it more. I've also seen a lot of reports that Curtis Bay Medical Waste Facility um, converts the waste that they burn into energy. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of pro-lifers are saying that these babies would have been sent to this waste facility and converted into energy. That I haven't confirmed either, um, because partially because we don't know if uh, we can't confirm that the the clinic was sending a lot of waste to this facility before this, and we can't confirm that there were babies in those boxes. So, well, I'm still going to be looking into it, but it's just it is so incredibly gruesome and morbid when uh, when you when you shine a line shine a light on this. Mm. Well, you have your your work cut out for you, Mary Margaret. Um, and you know, we hope that as you continue digging into the story, you'll come back and keep us uh, updated on everything you learn. Thank you so much for your time today and and for your important reporting on this in the Daily Wire. Oh, thank you so much for letting me share my story with you. Of course, yeah. And Mary Margaret's one of my favorite young reporters, so I, I highly recommend everybody give her a follow and, and make sure to check out this story on The Daily Wire. It is a great piece of writing and a great piece of reporting. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Mm-hmm.